Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. We thank you for uh, seeing us through uh, this past year, Lord. Um, we pray that you would continue to watch over us, to be with us, to guide us in the year ahead. Uh, Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to recognize your place and your position in our life and to, and to always have a heart that welcomes you and the power that you express. And uh, we praise you for your goodness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I go through my day, I exper experience various types of welcome, as I'm sure you do. You know, if I go into a real retail store, generally it's welcome to our establishment. And they're usually pretty generous, pretty nice with their welcome, with the hope what? That I would purchase something. It's, it's a welcome that's kind of nice, but it's not necessarily always sincere. Um, when I go into the classroom, depending upon the classroom and what's happening that day, I'll get a different type of welcome. Sometimes the students are like, eh, yeah, he's here again, isn't he? And sometimes the students are more like, hey, good, Dr. Pierce is here, yay. You know, that's, it just depends on what we're doing that particular day. Um, but my favorite welcome is when I go home and I walk into my house. And uh, first one to greet me is always my dog, um, Phoenix, our German Shepherd. She's uh, she's always right there pushing through the door as soon as I'm opening it. And um, she's pretty intensely happy that I'm there. And usually second is my wife. And then if any kids are around, it's it's them. But it's always nice to come home. There's a a uh, description of it that I really enjoy. It's the aroma of welcome. And that's kind of what uh, you experience there. And as we look at Jesus and we look at his miracles, we see that Jesus experienced different types of welcomes as well, different types of responses. And, and what I've discovered in looking at our passage this morning is that the welcomes that he uh, experience that the different types of welcomes that he experienced in this particular event actually kind of model how people uh, respond to him throughout their life. Uh, and sometimes we all do one of these, but it's it's hopeful, it's helpful that we uh, get to a point to where we're welcoming him the way we should as transformed believers. Let's take a look this morning in Mark chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through Jesus' uh, miraculous acts as recorded in the book of Mark. And we come today to an account that, uh, again, uh, we're fairly familiar with. It, it's, it's a fairly well-known story, but Mark tells it a little bit differently than the other gospel narratives that share this particular story. Uh, Mark, uh, in his accounting of this event, he kind of blends the individual with uh, his demonic possessors. Um, in the other biblical accounts, the other uh, accounts of this event, um, the writers clearly kind of distinguish the, the man who, who is possessed from the demons that are possessing him. Mark, however, uh, he's, he, he doesn't do that. You, you're, you never get a real sense of who's speaking to Jesus in, during this whole interaction. And I think part of what Mark's trying to get us to understand there, what he's trying to get his readers to understand, is that regardless of the supernatural nature or regardless of the, the 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 forces on us or the the those things that are impacting us and leading us in the journey that we're on ultimately our response to Jesus and our response to those things that we encounter with Jesus 
are on our shoulders. We can't blame someone else for what we ourselves are doing and how we ourselves respond to Jesus. Um, I doubt anybody younger than 30 will remember this, but um, many of the rest of you will remember that back in the 70s, there was a, uh, a comedian on TV. His name was Flip Wilson. And he had a very famous line that was a part of his shtick. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. That was his thing. That was his, his line. And uh, while I don't hear a lot of people actually saying the devil made me do it today, I think sometimes that is our disposition. And I think what Mark is trying to do is to undermine that whole mindset. He's trying to get us to, to realize that at the end of the day, it's our response to Jesus that matters. And, and we need to understand that, that uh, we are responsible for how we interact with God, how we interact with what he's doing and, and what he has done and what he wants to do in our lives. And so let's take a look at uh, chapter 5 this morning, the, the first 20 verses, and, and, and see what uh, transpires here and see at the different reactions that Jesus receives during this series of events. Beginning in verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerizim. And as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountain, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd was about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had been seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has made, had mercy on you. So he went out. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. So our story today actually is, is a rather short trip. It's a rather short interaction for Jesus. He gets off the boat. He has his interaction. Then he gets back on the boat and leaves. It's not one of these long, drawn-out experiences. It's not a long ministry stint for him in this particular environment. Um, and and it's, a, it's of a very different nature because this is among Gentiles. 
Um, we know this is among Gentiles by a couple of means in this account. The description of the fact that it's the Gerizim, the description of the fact that it's the Decapolis. Both of those tell us it's the uh, Gentiles. But even if we didn't have those descriptions, we would know this was Gentile land. Why? Because there are pig farmers there, and there would not be pig farmers among the Jews, as they did not particularly enjoy uh, pig, pork, uh, poor people. I'm just saying. Uh, I love me some pork chops and some pork ribs and some pulled pork and um, bacon and all other I'm making you all hungry. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but what we see here is indeed a, a, an interaction with the Gentiles. And that's going to play out in terms of Jesus' response a little later on. But what we also see here is indeed a, a spiritual reality at work. We see this engagement, and, and, and although the man does bear responsibility for a lot of what happens here, there is also what? There is a presence of the spiritual force that is exacting its influence and its role on, on Jesus, and, and, or excuse me, on the man and what's going on here. And we need to understand that as we deal with these things and as we respond to these things and as we look at the, the various reactions that are received here, that at the end of the day, it is a spiritual battle that is taking place. It, it, is, a, it is not just a matter of our own will. It's not just a matter of our own decision-making process. It's not just a matter of, of you know it, how well we can help ourselves or if we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or anything like that. It is a spiritual battle, and because it's a spiritual battle, the victory comes to those who submit to Jesus. Spiritual battles are won by Jesus working through us, by the Holy Spirit empowering us, by comforting us, correcting us, directing us. That's how spiritual battles are won. We need to get beyond this mindset that, well, I will just try harder or I'll just do better. We, we need to get beyond this mindset that sees a response or, or an answer to these difficulties, to these sins in our lives, as saying, well, I just need to buckle down and try harder. That is unsatisfactory. That will not work. The story is told of Dr. Bronson Ray, who was a noted brain surgeon, skilled in his craft, uh, world-renowned for uh, his capacity to, to deal with various brain injuries and so forth. And he was walking down the street one day, uh, just in his own little neighborhood there, and he saw a boy on a scooter smash headfirst into a tree. And he ran over there, realizing the boy was seriously injured. He ran over there, began to administer medical aid, told a bystander who had also seen it, call an ambulance. And as he proceeded to, to work on this young boy, uh, another boy not much older than the boy who had crashed, pushed his way through the crowd and said, I better take over now, sir. I'm a Boy Scout. I know first aid. His intentions were good, but what? If I'm laying there with a brain injury, I would much rather have a world-renowned brain surgeon helping me than a Boy Scout with the best of intentions. And yet, when it comes to spiritual matters, so often that's exactly what we do. We have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the all-powerful one, the one who created us, the one who is in authority over all spiritual matters, there to assist us, to help us, to deliver us, to direct us. 
and we say, well, I've studied a few verses. I think I know better how to deal with this. We need to find dependence upon God. Surrender to Him and His purpose and His direction how we live. But too often, we don't welcome His presence. We don't acknowledge His presence. We don't see His presence through the right lens. And so we become some mixture of ourselves and, and dependence upon Him, something that's less than it should be. As you look at the, the crowds and, and the individuals that interact with Jesus here, we, we see a variety of, of types of interactions here. The first I think we see is, is the bargainer. And while this is personified, this is expressed through the actions of the demonic, it is very much a reflection of how we too often respond to God. And what I mean by a bargainer is the person who finds themselves in some form of difficulty, some form of hardship, some situation in life, and they begin to bargain with God for release, for relief. It's, it finds expression, something that... Uh, along the lines of, God, if, if you just see me through this, or if you just get me through this, then I'll do this. God, if you just get me through this mess I'm in, I promise I'll never sin this way again to get me into a mess like this again. That's the bargainer. That, that's, that's the mindset that sometimes sets set in. But there, there's some problems with that perspective. Number one, it's dishonest. It's dishonest. Because really all we want is we want, that, we want that release from that moment. We really, most of the time when we make those bargains, we don't follow through with them. We, we don't carry out what we said we will. We get on the other side of it and we're like, oh well, I forgot. Or, oh well, uh, back to my old habits. There's a movie that, that came out in the 70s called the end, and Burt Reynolds was the star of it, and, and and the end of that movie portrays this reality very well. At the end of the movie, Burt Reynolds finds himself out in the ocean a long ways away from from uh, the coastline, and he, and he prays to God, God, if you just get me back to the land, I'll do this, and, and he has this list of things he's going to do, how he's going to be a better person and all these other things, and he starts to swim. And as he gets closer to the coastline, he says, well, if you get me there, I'll do this. And it's less than what it was before. He, he starts to take things away. And, and then by the time he gets to the land, he's like, well, uh, I'll just go my own way now. Thanks anyway. Okay. And that's so often how we think. That's how, that's how we, 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 we act. We, we may not even intend necessarily in the heat of the moment to, to be dishonest, but that's in fact how we're constructed. So bargaining is problematic there. Secondly, bargaining is problematic because it assumes we have some level of power or something to offer God. We, we think that, that it's almost, we, we picture it almost as if God's up there, oh boy, oh boy, uh, that's what I've always wanted, that's what I've always needed. Okay, I'll give you what you need then. That it, that's is it. That in any bargaining relationship, in, in any uh, exchange of goods, if you will, you have to have something the other person wants, something the other person needs to, to be able to purchase what it is you're trying to get. 
God doesn't need anything from us. And so the whole premise of bargaining is messed up. It's assuming that we hold something over God, that it's something that God's always wanted and God can't have, and so we're going to give it to him if he gives us what we want as well. The third problem is that it misunderstands the heart of God. That although God doesn't need anything from us, he does in fact love us. And God wants to deliver us. God desires to deliver us. The problem isn't in God's desire. It's not in trying to convince him to try and help us. That's not what is necessary in that moment. God doesn't need convincing to help us. He is full of grace. He is full of goodness. He is ready to help us. What needs changing is us and our response. Submitting to that grace that's already present. Submitting to that love that's already available. Submitting to that, that power that's already uh, a part of our experience if we simply acknowledge it. A second type of individual is the profiteer. And this is displayed and demonstrated to us in terms of the people of the city. So often people will tolerate God and His presence and His work as long as it doesn't affect prophets or as long as it doesn't affect our comfort level might be a better way to put it. We're good with God at work. We're good at, with God uh, doing whatever God's going to do as long as it doesn't really cost us anything or as long as it doesn't really make us uncomfortable. But you see God at work here and you see the response that's given to us in verse 15. It, it's the exact same phrase that's used up in verse 41 from chapter 4 regarding the, the apostles' response to Jesus calming, calming the, the waters. And they were afraid. It's the exact same phrase. It's the exact same reaction. But where it pushes them is in a very different direction. The apostles, when they were afraid, it did what? It led to them worshiping God. It, came to, it led to them acknowledging God, to, to them seeing Him more clearly for the first time. In this particular environment, the fear led them to what? To pushing God away. To them saying, leave me alone. When I was in college, my roommate and I um, started a, a ministry at a local church there. We were two ministerial students. We wanted to get involved, and so we started a, a little ministry, a children's ministry there. And it was largely driven by my roommate. He was very gifted with children, still is. Um, you know, children responded to him. He had one of those personalities, one of those, those outlooks that the kids just loved, and they were attracted to it. And so we started this work in, in, this, in this church, and the children started coming. And they were inviting their friends, and, and, and we were starting to see children just, just starting to show up at this church, walking, you know, sometimes several blocks to get there. And we had some of the older members in the church come to us and say, you have to stop this. The kids, they're too loud. They're, 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 they're bothering situation we can't can't afford the ministry that y'all are doing which 
wasn't much. We, we didn't ask for any money from the church. But we can't afford the, the, the heating and cooling costs. We can't afford this. We can't afford that. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just not very comfortable anymore. And so we stopped the ministry. We, we had no choice. Kids weren't welcome there. The power of God wasn't welcome there. And that's what you see here with the city folk. You cost us our pigs. So go away. Go away. And this is the reality too often in churches, too often in our own hearts, that we prefer our pigs over people. We prefer our material blessings and our comforts and our ease over the ministry to people who desperately didn't know that God loves them. That God can do some magnificent things in their presence. But at the heart of the issue really is that we want a God we can control. We want to determine how God's going to work and how God's going to go and what God's going to do. We, we want God to be somebody who's safe, somebody who works in just the ways we want Him to work. It's the way man has always been. From the Garden of Eden through every sinful story in the Bible to every sinful act in our own lives, it all boils down to us trying to define to God what he should be like and what should be happening. But our God is not one to be tamed. Our God is not one to be subdued. Our God is not one who answers to us. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there are multiple exchanges regarding the nature of Aslan, who is the picture of Jesus in the novels. And there's one particular exchange with, um, with Mr. Beaver, where Mr. Beaver is asked, is Aslan a tame lion? And he says, oh, goodness, no. A tame, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good. And we need to understand that our God is not a, a tame God. He's not a controllable God. He's not a God that will fit into our definitions and, and our explanations and our limitations. But He is, at the end of the day, constantly, always, continuously good. And so instead of trying to manipulate Him to our own purposes and to our own ends, we need to trust Him to lead us to His third group that you see here are the confused onlookers. This would be the individuals who are who are taking care of the pigs here. They have no idea what's going on. They run away initially. They come back and, and tell what's happening later on, but they don't have the, the, the insight. They don't have their own purposes or their own motivations. They are just watching and trying to understand and trying to uh, describe the work that's taking place here and what's going on here. And we have a lot of people uh, around us in this area, in this community, 
in this world that are confused onlookers. They don't understand who God is. They don't, they don't have an animosity necessarily. They're just ignorant. They don't understand what it is that God can do. They, they understand their hurt. They understand their, their need. They understand the fact that there's something missing in their life, but they don't know where to get that. There are people right here in Marshall who have never heard the name Jesus spoken from somebody communicating to them who he is and what he can do in their life. Never. And you say, how can that be? This is the Bible Belt. If I just get on the road right here and, and drive from, from here just down to 59, there's five churches in between here and there. And that's just on this one road that's a mile, a mile and a half of this one road. Five churches. How can there be people in this community that's not that large that have never heard the name Jesus? It's because we, as believers, remain silent about who He is and what He can do. We don't share. We don't communicate. We don't relay the truth. We've seen God at work. We know what He can do in our lives. We've seen the transformation He can bring, and yet we remain silent. And so there are many around us that are like the, the man in this encounter, initially damaged and broken. Notice how he's described in the opening verses. It says that no one could, could tame him. My translation says subdue him. It's a word that's used for wild animals. It's animals that are, are beyond domestication. It's animals that are beyond any sort of control. And that's where this man was. No one to love him. No one to love. Shackled. Hurting. Damaged. Cutting himself, it says, on a daily basis and crying out in agony. This is a man that, while we may not recognize immediately, personifies every person who's without Christ. Because all of us, apart from Jesus, are hurting. We're damaged. We're wounding ourselves. We're crying out for help. We're crying out for assistance. We're crying out for direction. And the malignant spirits that are around seek to deface us and turn us into non-entities. Entities that are easier to ignore than to engage. People walking around who are living, but they live among the dead and don't experience the joy that Christ alone can bring. That's where all of us were at one point. That's where all of us without Christ are. But we can help. We can engage. We can interact with people to see them find, discover the, the last type of person, the last interaction here, and that's the transformed believer. 
I love how he's described. It's very simplistic, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. What a transformation. To, to be in Christ is to experience contentment. To be in Christ is to experience rest from those things that were hurting us. To experience wholeness and peace. To be in Christ is to desire to go where Christ goes. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been, who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. I want to go where you go. I want to be where you are. That is what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what it looks like to be a truly transformed individual, to want to be where Christ is, to want to go where Christ goes, to want to uh, see what Christ does. I've had a taste. I want more. But Jesus doesn't want us to simply dwell in the presence of His power. Jesus wants us to go and to engage a world that is full of people like we once were, that is full of people who are hurting, that are full of, that's full of people who are lost. Go home to your own people. Report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. The message that we carry is so simple yet so profound. Too often believers get uh, get to, to a point to, to where we're struggling. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I, I, what, if, what if they ask me questions I, I can't answer? What if, they, what if they make accusations about my past? What, what if they, they, they bring up things I, I'm not ready to respond to? message is simply what Jesus says it is here. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. That's all we need to share. You want to bring up my past? Let's talk about it because I want to show you where I am now. I don't live there anymore. I saw a meme the other day. It expressed that very idea. Bringing up my past is like trying to, to steal from a house that I no longer live in. I don't live there anymore. Take whatever you want. God has brought me to a new environment, a new situation. Let me tell you all the things He has done for me. Let me tell you about the mercy He has shown to me. That is the message. That is the message that delivers. That is the message that we carry. The Holy Spirit will give you any extra words you need beyond that. The Holy Spirit will move in you to allow you to say what needs to be said. And guess what? If you can't come up with something, if there's nothing to say, then it doesn't need to be said. We trust the Spirit to work in us as we share. We trust the Spirit to deliver us through the hardships that we encounter, we trust the Spirit to be who the Spirit has been promised He would be. We're coming up on 
Easter season. We're just uh, a couple weeks now from celebrating Easter. This is a an opportune time to share, to communicate. Because many in our community, while there are those who have never heard, many in our community know what Easter is. They, they know what's going on. They know it's a Sunday. They're supposed to be in church. And whether they're the bargainer or the profiteer or the confused onlooker, we can use this opportunity to tell them of Christ's love. If all you can do is invite them to church, then invite them to church. But let me encourage you to go beyond that, to share your story of what Christ has done and the mercy He's shown you. To tell them there's something beyond just church attendance. There's something beyond just showing up this one time during the year. There's something beyond any of that. There is life everlasting. There is life right now. There is joy. There is peace. There is contentment. There is deliverance right now. And it's found in no other place, no other name than the person of Jesus. We have to be people who are walking and living as transformed believers. But too often we continue to walk around as if we're damaged and broken. If Christ dwells in you, you are a new creature. Will you struggle at times? Yes. Will you hurt at times? Most definitely. But the indwelling of the Spirit and the power of the resurrection calls us to move beyond that, to live in the life that Christ has created in our hearts and in our minds. Will we take this opportunity that Christ has given us all to be a people who welcome God's power, who live in God's power, and who share God's power with a world who desperately needs to hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray that you help us to, to be a people who are walking in your power. A people who are simply telling the story of what you've done for us and the mercy you've shown us. God, may we engage our culture in meaningful, appropriate ways. May we be the people that you've created us to be in the new life you've granted us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not experienced that life, who's not experienced that joy, that even now you would draw them and that they would seek out someone around them this morning who can share with them the power and the glory of your salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.